This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Many here in Chicago may remember the intense police surveillance that led up to and happened during the 2012 NATO protests. And I'm betting a lot of our listeners here in Chicago attended those protests. In fact, I'm positive because I was tweeting directly to protesters during those protests. For whatever reason, the local NBC affiliate was airing raw footage of the protest on one of its channels. I never saw them do that prior to the protest or after, so I was tweeting describing what I was seeing in the raw footage, which kept showing police positions, and out of the sight of many protesters, police assembling prior to rushing the crowd. Like I said, it, it was an intense time, and Chicago police and then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel were freaking out about what they saw as a frightening Occupy movement, and who knows what those evil masterminds at Occupy can come up with. Well, maybe what we should have been considering is not what Occupy was dreaming up, but the nightmare that the Chicago Police Department was going to let loose with the new surveillance software that violates civil rights and reinforces police biases and discrimination. And when I say let loose, I mean really loose, as in that technology then being improved upon and exported to countries the United States often condemns for its police state. Places like, I don't know, China. And the companies making the technology? Guess who funded them? We'll find out in a few when we speak with national security and technology writer and investigative reporter Mara Vistendahl, who wrote the Intercept series on Oracle. And we are going to be talking to her about the fourth part of that four-part series, which is titled, Oracle boasted that its software was used against U.S. protesters. Then it took the tech to China to sell the CIA-backed, that's right, CIA-backed Endica software for use by Chinese authorities. Oracle touted its use in Chicago for predictive policing. Again, this is the final part of a four-part series. Yeah, that article, as in Oracle Park, where the Major League Baseball San Francisco Giants play, as in Larry Ellison's Oracle, which started as a CIA project. Before joining The Intercept, Morrow was a national fellow at New America and this China Bureau Chief for Science. Mara is the author of The Scientist and the Spy, a true story of China, the FBI, and industrial espionage, and unnatural selection, choosing boys over girls, and the consequences of a world full of men, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Los Angeles Book Prize. You can find out more about Mara at maravistendahl.com. Just go to our site and click on her name. Or you can follow Mara on Twitter at Mara Vistendahl. That's Mara, H-V-I-S-T-E-N-D-A-H-L. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing today's show. Alexander Jerry, Alex, how was your weekend? R.I.P. This is cell producer Alex done in by a pecan shelling incident. <laughs> how did that I got happen? a pecan shell stuck under my thumbnail for like two days now. No kidding. Is it still there? Yeah. Oh, my God, dude. you got to get that out of there. Is it infecting or anything? Yeah. Oh, my God. Do you have a bandage around it? Uh, whatever happens to me happens oh, to me. Oh, man. Uh, no doctors. Uh, uh, pretty good pecans, though. I'm not going to complain about that. <laughs> the, ones, the ones that aren't under my thumbnail, are, it tasted pretty good. <laughs> my weekend started immediately after last Thursday's show when, for the first time, we actually pre-recorded our weekly Friday morning Patreon podcast. And for the first time since the pandemic began... I actually enjoyed outdoor-only, semi-socially distanced and unmasked time with fa family and friends. 
My girl and I even ate at a restaurant for the first time since March 7th, 2020. And not only one, but two different restaurants. Outdoor dining, of course. We camped in southwestern Michigan on Lake Michigan at Warren Dunes, uncomfortably sleeping on the ground in a tent, woken up by a raccoon which was trying to claw its way into our tent, spending the day marching for miles through shifting sand dunes and blazing heat to get to a very cold 60-degree Fahrenheit Lake Michigan. And I loved every torturous minute of it. And Alice, Alex, Alex, you asked. That's hard to say. Alex, you asked. Asked. Last week, what would be the first thing I would eat when I go out to a restaurant again? The answer apparently is a rack of lamb at a Kurdish restaurant, which is owned by a person who the United States government spent years trying to deport as he was suspected to have links to Abdullah Ocalan and the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? What virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to John K. Formulations and the tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell of Brett B. and Cherish O. Thanks, John. Thanks, Formulations. Thank thank you, Brett and Cherish. You can leave your answer to this week's question at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, Alex will have your some of your answers to this week's question from L following our guest. Again, the question from L is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Mexican brunch. In an article at Time Out, they cite Tomasina Myers, the founder of Oaxaca in London, which now includes 13 restaurants throughout England. Myers is quoted as saying, obviously I try very hard to never have a hangover. That is why I love tequila so much. It rarely makes you feel bad the next day. And maybe she's not trying hard enough. Uh, <laughs> when I've overdone it and I'm feeling worn out, often due to a lack of sleep as well as overindulging, I almost always swear by a hearty brunch. I'll start the morning just drinking as much water as possible with tea, coffee, and possibly some kind of juice. But then by mid-morning, I prepare the perfect Mexican brunch, some type of egg dish, doused in large amounts of salsa. Chilies are a kind of wonder food. They're high in antioxidants, great for getting one's system moving. Packed with vitamins and minerals, they really do make you feel better the next day. So that makes this week's hangover cure. If you're going to get drunk, drink tequila. But if you don't and end up with a hangover, eat a Mexican brunch, which includes eggs, plenty of salsa, and chilies. That's a very vague recipe for a Mexican brunch. And I always thought Mexican brunch was a Domino's game. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, and you can help with our horrible business model by subscribing to our weekly Friday morning Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell on this past Friday's Patreon podcast prior to leaving for my weekend camping in Michigan, on Lake Michigan with family, and seeing some very close friends, semi-socially distanced and unmasked outdoors. I shared my many anxieties I have about being semi-socially distanced and unmasked with family and friends, even outdoors. And 
how I, I shared how I was in no mood yet to party like it's 2019. I mean, celebrating with the, uh, while a pandemic still rages around the world, especially while the poor and the poorest na nations suffer, and then posting you and your friends on social media, media partying, it's just probably not a good look when seen in countries that are currently being devastated by the virus and brand new variants. And it's a real bad look if you had happened to be white and in the richest nation in the world that is rife with healthcare inequality and white privilege. So I'm kind of checking myself for a bit before popping champagne, which is about the whitest way to celebrate. We also played an interview from 10 years ago this past weekend, a conversation we had with Deepak Japathi about his then just published book, Breeding Ground. Afghanistan and the origins of Islamist terrorism. It's important to remember before the history of the Afghan war is rewritten as a glorification of the U.S. military and a valiant attempt at democratization, when it's actually blowback from failed Reagan-era policies, including arming radical Islamists in a pointless secret war against the Soviet Union, which was already facing its inevitable doom. Essentially, arming and training the terrorism movement that attacked the United States in 9-11, on 9-11. But you can only hear all of that, my trepidations about dancing on the grave of the pandemic just yet, and a talk reminding us all that the radical Islamists who attacked the United States on 9-11 were made in the USA by President Reagan and the CIA by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, a CIA-funded startup's software is now being used as a surveillance tool internationally. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? And we'll tell you what's coming up on the rest of this week's shows here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Did you know the CIA has a venture capital firm that funds startups? Yeah, me neither. And we could probably do a, an entire interview on that simple fact alone. But it's who they've funded and what those startups have done with that money that might really scare the hell out of you. Of course, if you are here in Chicago and participated in the 2012 NATO protests here, you may all be all too familiar with the kind of technology the CIA does help fund. Here to help us understand how CIA-funded surveillance software has been turned on not only U.S. citizens, but on citizens around the world, national security and technology writer and investigative reporter Mara Vistendahl wrote the Intercept article, Oracle boasted that its software was used against U.S. protesters. Then it took the tech to China, which is part of a four-part series at The Intercept. Welcome to This Is Hell, Mara. Thank you for having me on the show. You can find out more about Mara at her website, maravistendahl.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at maravistendahl. She's also the author of The Scientist and the Spy, A True Story of China, the FBI and Industrial Espionage, and Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. Just as a real quick question about your book, The Scientist and the Spy, A True Story of this, uh, China, the FBI, and Industrial uh, Espionage, is that where you started learning about the CIA-funded Oracle surveillance software? Was it during the process of uh, researching that book? No, it wasn't. Um, that book is a critical look at the 
FBI and DOJ's efforts to criminalize trade secrets theft over the past few decades and how that benefits U.S. corporations. Um, but it is primarily about a battle between the U.S. and China over technology. And so that's become a, a major theme of my work. Yeah, this uh, this book is, or this writing that you have at uh, Intercept is absolutely mind-blowing. And you write, as you start, you write, as he helped plan massive demonstrations in Chicago to protest the 2012 NATO summit. Matt McLaughlin knew he was up against a formidable formidable police force, an organizer with Chicago's Occupy movement. Matt had watched the as the, the city spent millions beefing up security. The Chicago Police Department invested in riot gear. It rolled out a controversial long-range acoustic device, a sonic weapon that emits a piercing, chirping sound. Police rounded up protesters who demonstrated against defunding mental health clinics. Then shortly before the May summit began, Authorities arrested three people in McLaughlin Circle, and he discovered that the group had been infiltrated by undercover cops. I'm going to ask you a couple of basic questions here. Is there anything illegal about cops going undercover within political movements? Oof. Uh, unfortunately, not as far as I know. I, well, I believe that in that particular case, I'm not an expert on the NATO 3 or the NATO 5. Um, they may have crossed some lines. Um, you know, the, the, the article is not primarily focused on that, but it is, um, it shows the extent to which uh, Chicago police went in trying to stop um, protesters from expressing their First Amendment rights. Um, you know, so already by the time that thousands of people convened on Chicago for the um, NATO protests, there were um, huge concerns within the movement about the way that police were were reacting. You know, as you know, as I noted in the article, they had the, the sonic weapon that they'd rolled out. Um, the first arrests um, of the NATO three, I think, happened on the eve of the summit, and it became clear um, soon afterward that the movement had been inf- infiltrated. And you point out that McLaughlin was one of several organizers who posted updates on Occupy Chicago's two Twitter accounts, sharing information on planned march routes and where protesters could find food and lodging. Newly discovered documents show that many of his tweets likely ended up flowing through CIA-funded data analytics software accessed by police. CIA-funded. Who did the CIA intend to target with their software? Is this a case of, I don't know, maybe the war coming home, surveillance software meant to target enemies of the United States and potential terrorists overseas being turned on the citizens of the United States? Well, there are definitely ties to the war on terror. Uh, the funding came from InQtel, which is the CIA's venture capital firm. Um, it's ostensibly uh, separate from the CIA, but the funding is coming from them. And they've funded numerous um, social media surveillance texts tech products over the years. Um, and DECA was one of the early ones that they funded. And uh, it doesn't just allow police to surveil social media, which is a major concern um, of the way it was used in the NATO protests. It also gives this kind of overarching um, dashboard for you know police or other government agencies to make sense of supposed threats, right? So they can layer geospatial information over um, you know, police reports, um, past incidents, um, puts to put 
a real-time stream of um, people's Twitter feeds over the top and and somehow mine that all to um, come up with um, interesting leads, supposedly. So a good a good um, comparison is Palantir. Probably more people have heard of Palantir. Um, they've gotten a lot of negative press for their work with police and their software, Palantir Gotham, does something very similar to Endeka. And you know, it doesn't always deliver what they promise. Um, these companies have been accused of really um, you know, touting a, this magic product that's going to transform policing and going to help uh, police stop crime before it happens. Often, um, the technology uh, is error-ridden. Uh, it, it really doesn't lead to any significant in investigative breakthroughs, but it's just as damaging if it doesn't accomplish what it says it does as if it does. So... There's a CIA venture capital firm. Why does the CIA need a venture capital firm? Is this something new? You know, what kind of startups are they investing in? So, because this is something the, that just, yeah. really, it just blew my mind because they actually even sometimes turn a profit, which is just, the right. whole thing is weird. Yeah. So, you know, it has to do with partly um, the dawn of the big data era and, you know, proliferation of internet technologies and the CIA realizing, you know, they can capitalize on all this data that's out there and fund technologies, um, that might show promise for national security purposes later on. And, um, after 9-11, uh, a number of um, technologies were funded that had this kind of surveillance potential. Um, one of them was Indeca, which was backed by um, InQtel, the CIA venture capital firm, in 2003. Palantir was another one, uh, which was actually funded later. And you know, then over the years that, that followed, you see many more of these being funded. Um, and you know, I should say that Indeca was a technology that also um, is used by businesses to you know, make sense of consumer data, for example. Um, but the way I imagine that the way it was sold to InQtel was really for this um, um, surveillance purpose. And it, um, we know from, you know, found in the process of reporting the story that it has been used at Guantanamo. Um, it's not clear what exactly it was used for there, um, but, you know, it's it was used from 2008 until at least 2019, possibly still today. And so, you know, somebody somebody saw it there as a very worthwhile piece of software. How visible is this kind of CIA investment? How much transparency is there? Do we know who the CIA is investing in? Uh, it that's a complicated question because InQtel is public about what they do, but they don't always release the amount of funding that they give companies. So like, like now they have Endeka listed in their portfolio. You can go to their website, you can see what technologies they've backed. Um, but in previous years, it, it we've had to uncover what technologies they funded through leaked documents and so forth. Um, so my colleague, Lee Fang wrote about a, a leak of um, documents that showed what um, technologies InQtel had funded, for example, a few years ago. So they don't completely hide it, but they're not completely transparent either. And it took me, um, it took me a fair amount of time to, to you know, reconstruct. You know, had they actually given Indeca funding, 
Um, you know, it was clear that they helped them broker partnerships with the DOD and so forth, um, but it, it took a bit of digging. So do these companies that get investments from the CIA, do they boast about these investments? Do they try to keep them secret? Because I would imagine that during this time of people being more critical of policing, that there would be a lot of corporate blowback against this. Well, it depends. For many tech companies, their bread and butter is um, the national security industry and, you know, companies and, and military industrial complex. And so for them, this is a major selling point that they were seen by InQtel as having promise. Uh, and Deco was acquired by Oracle, the software giant and the database giant in, um, 2011 and Oracle, um, for many people may remember them as the company that bid to buy the U.S. operations of TikTok last year. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And I was going to ask yeah. you something about that, but go ahead. Yeah, so they were the front runner to to buy TikTok last year. But for for many people, they're not really a household name. Um, they are, however, a major technology company, and unlike say Apple or Facebook or Google, they have openly courted this image of very close to the U.S. government. So other technologies for or other companies, you know, for example, Google is working on DOD projects and is um, doing quite a bit of government work. So is Amazon, but they don't, you know, try to make that central to their image. And at, after um, George Floyd was murdered, the, these companies put out statements saying, you know, we don't, um, we think, you know, police killings are horrible, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was empty words, but they at least tried to project that image. Oracle, on the other hand, is um, they are traditional, the executives are big in, um, contributors to Republican campaigns. Um, they got very close to Trump. Um, they actually have a magazine that's called Profit, which I think like a crazy name for your company magazine, but that's what it's called. So they're kind of a, you know, it's, it's not that I think many huge technology companies are engaged in activities that are very problematic, but they just kind of own it. Well, what concerns do you think surveillance critics would have about a company like Oracle purchasing TikTok? Well, that, so this, the stories that I reported are very interesting in light of their bid to um, to grab TikTok. They, you know, last year when that was announced, um, there the decision to hand U.S. operations to TikTok, of TikTok to Oracle and Walmart was largely seen as a product of um, very vigorous lobbying, lobbying. You know that these executives had spent. Um, years cozying up to the Trump Trump uh, campaign, and you know, also trying to present themselves as um, very good at protecting Americans' data. As you know, we are a patriotic U.S. first company, and um, what my reporting found is that they actually have a very active business in China, selling to um, or marketing their technology for use by Chinese police. And this technology Endica that they had um, pushed to police in Chicago was also later marketed by Oracle in China. And so 
you know, while they own this image of, um, yeah, we work with police, we, we love law enforcement. Um, when it comes to the work in China, they, they really try to distance themselves from it. Right. And you said, or you were just saying Oracle's case has a twist after promoting Endica's use on NATO protesters. Oracle went on to market the CIA funded software for police use around the world, including in China, where its de- uh, deployment would presumably be at odds with CIA and interests and where social media users have few civil liberty protections to shield them from police abuses. Now, there mm-hmm. were great concerns over the China social credit system, which expands the idea of a credit score to all aspects of life, judging citizens' behavior and trustworthiness, as Wired reported back in July of 2019. Is there any indication or any evidence that the CIA funded software was used in some of the issues China has been criticized for, like their surveillance and detention of the Uyghur. Is the CIA assisting China's surveillance state that the U.S. in turn condemns? No, I think that is a step too far. Okay. I think we can say that the um, CIA funded indirectly Endeka, this Oracle technology, and that that technology has then been marketed heavily and in some cases um, it seems purchased by police in China but you know is does the CIA have an interest in the technology being used by Chinese police I think on the surface not um, I did somebody that I spoke with raised the possibility of you know maybe there's a back door in the technology you know we know from the Snowden documents that anything is possible um, I did, uh, I didn't include this in the article, but I did kind of report that out and run that by some cryptographers. Uh, they told me that was extremely unlikely in this particular case. And so, you know, I think likely the CIA is not happy with Oracle um, now of this use of its technology. I, I've heard that um, Oracle has received some blowback in in Washington um, after the series published. So uh, you write that among the products that Oracle pushed in the China documents was Endica, which allows police to both visualize data and mine social media. The documents describe the software's use by Chicago police as a pioneering event that paved the way for police adoption elsewhere. Now, this all happened while Rahm Emanuel was mayor of Chicago. Emanuel was also the mayor who covered up the video of the police killing of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald until Mm -hmm. after Emanuel was reelected. It's now being reported that Emanuel will be appointed by President Joe Biden as ambassador to Japan. Is there bipartisan support for the kinds of surveillance technologies that we saw implemented here against the protesters in Chicago and has have been expanded on since? Is, can you vote this kind of police surveillance out of office? Well, there is, you know, I'm, I've covered China for years. I was a correspondent there for eight years and I still primarily cover China. And there is definitely bipartisan support for getting tough on China, for um, going after Chinese companies. Um, Where it gets more complicated is when you get into U.S. surveillance tech. And, you know, I think there are a few people in Congress who, who see this as a global issue, who are concerned about surveillance in the U.S., and concerned about the export of U.S. technologies to places like China, um, the UAE, to Israel, to um, you know, to authoritarian countries, and that's a good that's a good step. 
Um, but there, I would not say that there is widespread concern about U.S. companies um, involved in surveillance work. Um, you know, I also found that Oracle had um, claimed work in the UAE. Um, they claimed to have worked with police of Dubai, um, in uh, in Pakistan, in Turkey. Um, in Brazil, we, my colleague in Brazil, um, also published a very detailed investigation on their work with the, with the very corrupt um, police force in Rio, and you know, so this is not just a U.S.-China issue. Um, this is a, this is about U.S. companies and tech. I think technology multinationals in general um, will go up to wherever the line is. So, you know, if there are, if there are no regulations preventing them from selling a certain technology to a certain government, I believe that they will just go ahead and sell it. Um, you know, I had a lot of back and forth with Oracle uh, on this particular issue and, you know, push them like, well, you've sold to the um, uh, Public Security Bureau in Xinjiang where, um, you know, Crimes against humanity are happening. Some people allege it's a genocide uh, with with hundreds of thousands or a million Uyghurs interned in camps. And it's yes, but that's allowed. Um, you know, we stopped our work there in 2019. Okay, which is really late, and that's a, that was allowed by U.S. regulations at the time. Um, so, you know, I think the issues is right, U.S. regulations allow quite a lot of leeway, and there is. If you look at the influence of the tech lobby, the U.S. tech lobby, um, in Congress, um, in in other areas, in journalism, and so forth, um, there's a lot more um, support for going after Chinese companies um, because, you know, the, that that you have this big lobbying industry behind keeping the focus on on other companies. And you also quote NQTEL CEO Gilman Louie, who said in a press release at the time of the deal with Endica, saying, we see significant opportunities to extend and apply their commercial technology in the pursuit of enhanced national security. So in accepting commercial technologies to even just follow our everyday purchases online, are we also complicit? Are we also accepting the foundation of this kind of surveillance? How, how complicit are we in this police surveillance when we accept its commercial use, which can be easily adapted to become surveillance? Well, I really d don't believe that people want to be surveilled in any way. You know, our system is deeply flawed as we've seen with um, it, the police killings over the past year. We do have ways to push back um, against the use of technology by police and you know, through the Freedom of Information Act, um, you know, through groups that are dedicated to working on this sort of thing, uh, we've learned quite a bit about what police do and what technologies they use in the United States. Um, in Chicago, um, there is a coalition called Erase the Database um, that has worked on um, the issue of, of CPD using an Oracle database um, to collect information on supposed gang members that in many cases includes children. And, you know, so that's all good that we have that, um, you know, we do have that room to, to push back. But of course, much, much more needs to be done. 
And you mentioned how, uh, along with millions of arrest records, the system that was employed here in Chicago, which was called Citizen Law Enforcement and Analysis and Reporting, or the CLEAR system. You write that along with millions of arrest records, CLEAR houses data on purported gang members that activists say have been used by police to discriminate against people. And we've discussed this on our show in the past because one of the things that CLEAR does is track every contact gang members or suspected gang members have with anybody. So if you have a neighbor who happens to be a gangbanger and you talk to them, there's a very good chance that you're going to be in the clear system. If you don't live in a neighborhood that happens to have gangbangers living next door to you, suddenly you don't, you're not in that system. You then quote Zanat Sobravila, uh, an, an organizer with Organized Communities Against Deportations in Chicago, one of the groups behind the uh, campaign Erase the da- Database that you were just mentioning, saying of clear, it's racist. 95% of the names are black and Latinx. It doesn't serve our purpose of reducing crime and keeping us safe. It just serves the purpose of being able to justify more policing and brutality. And you add Erase the Database has documented children as young as nine who are listed in the database. So is there any evidence that surveillance does stop crime and catch those who commit it? Or does it, as Zanat argues, justify simply more policing and brutality? Because I'm wondering how much you think it it has contributed maybe even to the rise of protests against racialized police violence and policing in general, because this surveillance may have triggered that kind of protest. Yeah, I mean, I think the point um, that Sobervila raised is a very good one, that, you know, it's not even clear that these technologies accomplish what they're supposed to do, what they're advertised as doing. And there have actually been really interesting, um, you know, ethnographies and interviews done with police where many police officers themselves think that this technology is junk. They don't understand why they need to use it. They think it wastes their time. Um, you know, they see that, that, that they're not actually, it's not helping them prevent crime. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, anytime there is, um, uh, an issue of another police killing, the answer for some police chiefs is more technology. You know, supposedly the technology is neutral and that the technology is going to help us, you know, av- avoid rogue cops um, because they believe that the issue is, you know, a few bad apples and not the entire system. And so if we just get better technology, we can prevent, um, you know, we can prevent those issues from coming up. If we, if we, um, you know, get more body cams, if we get this and this and this, and, you know, I'm all for body cams, but in, there are other, in the wake of, um, the killing of George Floyd, there are tech companies that have been quietly pushing their products that are more in the, in the predictive policing vein and more in the, you know, let's just get more data on people and then you'll be able to kind of figure out where the crime is, is coming up. And this, the frightening thing about, about recent years is that, you know, a few years ago, it was primarily companies like Palantir, um, Predpol is another one that were, uh, known as the kind of leaders in this market. And, the when you see a contract with one of those companies, you can kind of guess what it's about. You can guess that it has a predictive, predictive complete uh, policing component. And in the early years, they often kind of boasted about their work because it wasn't as seen as as fraught. 
Um, and now you have big tech companies like Oracle, Microsoft, IBM, um, Accenture, and many, I mean, pretty much name a tech company, they're moving into the policing space. And you know, the problem with the Microsoft contract is that you can't, on the surface, figure out is it for office or is it for something else? You know, it's, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't immediately, um, strike people as problematic, but, you know, in fact, it is, it is even more powerful companies that are marrying their data that they have on everyone with police power, which is incredibly frightening. How can, because I think this is a, one of the things that people have uh, can find solace in when they do see these kinds of studies that are done here in Chicago that several years ago, uh, through this clear database, they had a front page story on the Chicago Tribune about how all crime in the entire city, they realized were, came down to 1,500 individuals. And if they just track those 1,500 individuals, those are the people who have the most contact with people who are committing crimes. So everybody was very delighted by this because finally we had this what is believed to be an objective algorithm giving us a scientific outcome of data analysis. So how can an algorithm or surveillance technology uh, be, discriminatory, be discriminatory? How can it also have the same racial biases of the police that we're trying to avoid in the first place? You're talking about the heat list. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Um, well, the problem with using algorithms and policing is that they are opaque and um, and the data that you're feeding into them is generally racist and garbage in some cases, right? So if you have, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, as many people before me have pointed out. And so the, if you're feeding in um, racist, fraught police data, you're going to get um, you're just simply going to get recommendations to go surveil those same people. You know, at least in the U.S., there we're able to monitor a little bit what happens. You know, we're able to go to the streets if we're not happy with what's happening. We're able to form civil society groups. Um, and the problem with Oracle exporting these technologies to then places like China is that people don't have any of those rights. And because the, when you take away all those civil liberties, the system doesn't even need to be accountable. So, you know, here it is not, not producing, it's not preventing crime. It's also, it's producing garbage. Um, but there is at least an expectation that it should. And, you know, we have, there have been departments that have scrapped their predictive policing departments or at least overhaul them in some way in reaction to, um, to outcry. It's, there's a lot more that needs to be done. And certainly it, we are not a model of how uh, policing should be run in any shape or form, but you know, these technologies are then peddled overseas and police just need to justify going after somebody for, you know, for any reason. And, you know, they might need a reason to round up ethnic minorities, for example. And it's a much, um, it's, I mean, it's hard to describe, like the U.S. system is so broken, um, but then you take that system and, and, and see it on steroids, and that's kind of what you have in China. 
You also cite Matthew Guarilia, who is a policy analyst with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who focuses on surveillance and policing, saying, sifting through data and social media posts in hopes of finding unknown unknowns sounds more like dragnet surveillance than a targeted and responsible investigatory tactic. It's irresponsible and careless from a civil liberties perspective to collect up a vast amount of data in hopes that something in the pile will be a precisely unknown line of investigation. Why the greater concern for dragnet surveillance compared to a targeted and responsible investigatory tactic? What's more scary about dragnet surveillance? Well, so Oracle pitched Endica, and um, it appears that it was used this way in the NATO protests in Chicago in, in 2012 um, as software that could help police just find incidents without any suspicion. So they can just go into the software and kind of play around, basically. And then at the end of that session, they would come up with something. Um, you know, in during the NATO protests specifically, uh, the the. <laughs> It was sold as, you know, you can just go in and search um, a log of of tweets that people have made over the past few days, even if they deleted them, and you can zero in on ones that are so 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 called negative, right? Like negative sentiment, um, or someone might be angry, uh, and, and you could also search for tweets that have the word protest in them, uh, and this idea that you know that unknown unknowns would be a useful line of inquiry is really, uh, you know, goes against the foundation of justice in America, the idea of justice in America, which is that you're supposed to have a reasonable suspicion to go investigate somebody and not just like dig around in this neighborhood because it, it looks interesting based on this crappy data that I fed into the system. You also mentioned how some of the surveillance software was used during the George Floyd protest. There has been talk of uh, restricting and limiting protest activities since Standing Rock. There's been state legislatures that have been considering ways to limit protest. Even before this kind of, you know, before those kinds of legislative actions actually come to the fore, how much do you think protest is already criminalized in the United States through these kind of surveillance technologies. Yeah, I mean, the, the rise of surveillance technology has certainly not helped um, protesters exercise their rights. You know, I also covered the George Floyd protests. I was in Minneapolis, um, I was living in Minneapolis at the time, and went through some of the um, documents that were released in this hack called Blue, Blue Leaks, um, which was a trove of documents from fusion centers um, th that are these kind of post 9-11 um, entities for police intelligence. And so I went through those documents and you could see um, what kinds of so-called intelligence um, police were sending out in, during, the, during the protests. And a lot of it was like, someone tweeted a threat and, you know, somebody um, decided they were going to have a big gathering or a candlelight vigil. Um, in, even in some cases, police actively monitored candlelight vigils. And, you know, it just shows that like they are collecting everything and not even 
properly sifting through it to discern, you know, what is truly an issue and what is not. It was just this, you know, criminalizing of everyday behavior. Uh, and I think it's often made possible by social media. Um, I mean, you know, people often say things on social media that are sarcastic or that they don't truly mean, or, you know, they say them when they're emotional, um, but they're not going to go act on it. And I, and I see, you know, also in the cases that have come out of the protests, um, like people uh, charged with crimes connected to the protests where the, their social media um, it became a part of it. One last question for you, Mara. We've been speaking with national security and technology writer and investigative reporter Mara Vistendahl, who wrote the Intercept series on Oracle. And the fourth part of that series is called Oracle boasted that its software was used against U.S. protesters. Then it took the tech to China. You can, uh, Mara's also the author of The Scientist and the Spy, A True Story of China, The FBI and Industrial Espionage, and Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. Find out more about Mara at her website, maravistendahl.com. One last question for you, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. It's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And I think our audience is going to hate your response <laughs> to this question. You quote Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, a law professor at American University and author of The Rise of Big Data Policing, Surveillance, Race, and the Future of Law Enforcement, saying that what the oracles of the world are doing is trying to make a play to be the platform of policing. The calculation is we have all this personal data. Police need personal data. We know how to do data analytics, and we're doing it in the corporate realm. What if we move into the government space? Wouldn't that be great? It should raise, as you write, it should raise red flags when big tech enters the, or he was saying, it should uh, raise red flags when big tech enters the policing space because it takes two forms of unreflective power, big tech and policing, and puts them together. So what could happen if private entities like Oracle move into the government space? I mean, this would sound like another step in the privatization of the commons, but this time it's policing. So what's your biggest concerns about private entities like Oracle moving into the government space? Oh, of many concerns, and they already have moved into the government space. It's not just Oracle; it is also IBM, Microsoft, and you know Amazon with the whole Ring system. It is very alarming. The um, App Citizen, which <laughs> is a basically enables a kind of vigilantism, um, crowdsourced vigilantism. I think that this is something that needs just a lot more attention um, over years to come. It needs attention from legislators, it needs attention from people in power. Um, but you know, the problem is these companies are very powerful and, and police are of course a powerful institution in this country too. And so, yeah, those two forms of power, um, they get together and it's, um, it's hard to stop them. Mara, this is fantastic work. And even though we were just discussing the final part of this four-part series, I strongly suggest that all of our listeners go read the entire series so they get the full context of your reporting. This really is fantastic work. And I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Take care. 
Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. And if you like what you just heard, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise or you can subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can simply do a one-time donation or repeating donation to the show. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering the question so far. This week's question from hell is... Oh, using that cough button over there. <laughs> what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Damn. Craig, uh, Jared B. says, can I pick a vice? Sloth. <laughs> Braden S. says, vulnerability. Like, if there's ever a situation where you need to resort to cannibalism, I just can't put up much of a fight. <laughs> And K says, left hand turn. What virtue are you signaling? Krimsky K says, I'm only taking your loincloth. Cheer up. Could be worse. And finally, I think you're going to like this one. What virtue are you signaling? Marianne M says, bitch. <laughs> For those of you who are not in the know, and so you can more accurately answer, or most accurately answer the question from hell this week, Virtue signaling is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week... In rotten history, on June 9th, 1893, 128 years ago this Wednesday, in Washington, D.C., Ford's Theater, the site of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, and named Ford's Athenaeum at the time of Lincoln's murder, collapsed. Originally constructed as a church, the building had not hosted a theatrical production in many years. Shortly after Lincoln's death in 1865, overwhelming public sentiment had forced the owner, John T. Ford, to shut down his grand show place and sell it to the U.S. government, which converted it into workspace for the Office of Veterans Pensions and Records. But by 1893, the building's eternal structure was getting old, and while new heating and plumbing were installed, clerks who worked there had begun to complain about sagging floors and shaky stairways. And on the morning of June 9th, as work began in the basement on a new electrical system, yeah, they were working on the heating, the plumbing, and the electrical system while the floors were sagging and the stairwells were shaky, but at least they upgraded the electric. One of the building's structural piers suddenly gave way, causing parts of all three floors to come crashing down like a stack of pancakes. I've actually seen that happen to a building before. 22 people were killed and another 68 were seriously injured. A jury would find both the electrical contractor and the chief of the pension office guilty of criminal negligence, but neither man was penalized. That's how that works. Instead, Congress voted to provide cash compensation to the victims and their families, and even after expensive repairs, the building was deemed unsafe for human occupation, so it was used as a warehouse until 1918, 
and then left to sit decrepit and mostly unused until its massive top-to-bottom reinforcement and restoration in the 1960s. Ford's Theater now not only operates as a theater, although performances are currently online due to the pandemic, but it also hosts tours because nothing spells F-U-N like visiting the site of a presidential assassination. Wow, that sounds like good times. Also in Rotten History, June 10th, 1924, 97 years ago this Thursday, Giacomo Matteotti, socialist opposition leader in the Italian parliament, was attacked by a gang of fascist thugs loyal to Prime Minister Benito Mussolini. In other words, total dicks. The attackers forced Matteotti into a car, stabbed him to death, and then dumped his corpse in the countryside north of Rome, where it would be found two months later. Just 11 days before his death, Matteotti had dared to stand up in the chamber of deputies and explicitly call out Mussolini and the ruling fascist party. He accused the party of election fraud and violent voter intimidation and said the fascist grand council and militia were illegal and unconstitutional. Matteotti had also just published a book on that very subject. His outspoken public stance caused many to fear that his days were numbered still. His murder shocked Italians and even briefly threatened the ouster of Mussolini, who was also being challenged by extremists within his own party. To this day, historians disagree as to whether Mussolini was directly involved in the assassination of Matteotti. But in the months of political chaos that followed, after opposition members protested by withdrawing from Parliament, Italy's King Victor Emmanuel, fearing civil war, would pardon the murderers and refuse to ask Mussolini for his resignation. Mussolini would finally seize the moment by publicly claiming responsibility for the murder, abandoning all pretense of democracy, shutting down the opposition press, and forming a secret police force. This marked the true beginning of Italy's fascist dictatorship, which Mussolini claimed was necessary for the preservation of political stability. So remember, fascists come to power by politically destabilizing a nation and then claiming they are the only ones who can return that nation to stability, despite being the ones who caused the destabilization in the first place, and without any record or history of political stabilization other than through violent force, which does not bring about stability. That's rotten history, and this is Hell. Alex, who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, that's Tuesday, Jacqueline Keeler is going to be on to talk about her book Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. And that is uh, just in your inbox. I just got a copy of that. Oh, sweet. Thank you very much. And what about Wednesday's show? Rob Wallace is going to tell us if we can have a party. (laughs) I think we might have other questions for him, but uh, epidemiologist and one of our favorite guests of the pandemic, Rob Wallace is going to be back on the show to talk about some of his recent work. Yeah, and uh, all sorts of stuff that's been uh, said about the coronavirus, especially in major establishment media outlets that is very, very misleading. And what about Thursday show? Uh, Thursday, uh, Erica X. Eisen of Hypocrite Reader uh, will be on to talk about her Boston review piece, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 years on, plus a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Uh, Also, one last thing I just want to mention real quick before we go a few minutes early. On the front page of today's New York Times, there is a story about Michigan, and it's about a story about what's happening with the cherry farms in northwestern Michigan. Apparently, the pandemic has revealed to everybody in the communities up there uh, that, uh, you know, certain of their favorite cherry stands to go get fresh Bing cherries from Michigan and to get cherry pies and to get cherry flavored donuts they have all these stands all over the place that everybody independently run that everybody loves 
Well, some of them had mandatory mask rules, and others said if you wear a mask in here, you're a communist. So the pandemic has revealed to everybody in northwestern Michigan, if their neighbor happens to be more afraid of an actual pandemic that's killing millions and millions of people, or the threat of the ghost of communism. So they really, so they, that was what was revealed by the pandemic in northwest Michigan, and you got to check out this article at the New York Times just about how how pure Michigan is. I want to thank our guest today, Mara Vistendahl, who wrote the Intercept series on Oracle and their connections to the CIA and surveillance overseas. Thanks. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for producing today's show and booking this week's guest. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is if you are going to get drunk, drink tequila. But if you don't, and you end up hungover, eat a Mexican brunch, which includes eggs, plenty of salta, salsa, <laughs> and chilies. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>